much rather not You wouldn't believe all that I got Considering everything I already forgot I've got ways to save the world Mixed with things to say to girls I got the wrong words Welcome, neighbor. This is Folk University's Folk You Talk Show, and I am your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's been a little while. Wondering what Folk University is? Folk University is an experiment in slow learning. It's a question. Can we use our ideas, our skills, and knowledge to come closer together as individuals? The Folk You Talks are a way for neighbors to share what they know with each other. Tune in every Friday from 1 to 3 live at CKTZ 89.5 FM or on the World Wide Web at CortezRadio.ca. And there's reruns on Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. Or you can tune in to new ideas anytime by listening to past classes and podcasts at FolkU.ca. I can Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to my senses? Don't get me wrong, I am thankful I can think, but I'd be thankful to be also able not to think. So, neighbors... I came back today uh, live on the air specifically in honor of Canada's Independent Bookseller Day, which is actually tomorrow, but today being the Friday of the show. I thought, hey, what a wonderful time to have one of my favorite authors and your neighbor, Shana Lamper, on the radio in celebration of this. And then later, we're going to have our favorite bookseller on to talk a little bit about what she's reading and the creation of, I don't know, maybe BC's tiniest and best bookstore. So that's going to be Marnie, in case you're wondering who that is. And so right now, um, I have Shana Lampert, who's joining us uh, in the studio. Hi, Shana. Hi, Amanda. <laughs> I, I have to slowly get re-coordinated to all the things that I have to do at once, which I had a little bit of anxiety again today about the soundboard. But you're you just look amazing <laughs> there with I've seen Bob Marley behind you in the studio. And yeah, it's really it's rocking. It's a it's a great space. Mm -hmm. Shana said that she's taken pictures. So maybe mm -hmm. actually for once I'll put a picture of, of my guest up on, um, on the, the, the website afterwards, which is something I usually forget. So Shana, I know you as a writer and an author and for your two acclaimed short story collections, The Falling Woman and Oh My Darling, and your two novels, Radiance, which is about a Hiroshima survivor who comes to live for a period of time with a Long Island housewife. And now you have Petra, which is a fictional story of the real Petra Kelly, a peace activist and founder of the Green Party. And I love you as a writer because of how deeply you can take us into the experience of your characters and how haunting those characters are as you as they take life in your stories and then ultimately in my own mind actually i i 
I feel like I have to uh, um, kind of regularly forgive you for uh, one of your stories. And oh, my darling, with a, which is the child who has a really unfortunate interaction with a cougar, um, and 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 that I think about so so often. It's a beautiful, haunting, lovely story, as all of your stories are. Um, anyway, I really I feel like I owe you a huge debt of gratitude as a writer who shaped my life but also because I've gotten to work with you and your generous kind incredibly generative teacher (laughs) and I'm learning all this other stuff through Petra I'm starting to realize that you have a huge other background as a peace activist as a green worker Um, and I'd like to know a little bit about that past too okay okay well that's that's that sounds exciting yeah (laughs) thanks for the beautiful introduction that's really lovely manda yeah and if people don't um if listeners don't know manda is a really talented writer in her own right and i was lucky enough to work with manda in a workshop i teach at hollyhock called going under the words and manda came in with a manuscript in process and we all just really it knocked our socks off so i'm really excited because i get to mentor her in november when she's going to, oh no, we decided it was January. Yeah, so she's going to deliver the manuscript, a full draft of it to me in January, and I get to, it gets to be my New Year's reading for 2021. So I'm really excited about that. I feel like now you've just said that on the radio. I'm going to really have to deliver. So. You're going to have to do it now, <laughs> Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your, your, this this other past of yours as an activist yeah. and um and yeah and, and that part of your history that led up to perhaps you being also interested in Petra as a character well yeah so so in the 1980s I got as many people did incredibly involved in the peace movement I was I mean we can sometimes forget or for many people who didn't live through it just how horrifying um, it was to live under the nuclear shadow. And um, I was really scared. I was coming of age in that time, and I got really involved in the peace movement. And um, we invited Petra Kelly, who was the founder of the Green Party and the real, really the leader in the German fight against nuclear missiles to come to Vancouver. And I should just pause for a second and explain that at that time, there was a kind of ground zero for the nuclear protests, and it was Germany. And that was because um, NATO planned to put Pershing cruise and um, Pershing missiles and cruise missiles in West Germany. And then there was the Iron Curtain. And then East Germany and Russia had SS-20 nuclear missiles on the other side. So what they were saying is we're going to have or we're preparing for what they called battlefield nuclear war. And everyone knew, generals knew, every and anal, most analysts said this is going to escalate into all-out nuclear war within minutes. And so people were terrified. I mean, we lived and breathed that atomic terror the way that we live climate anxiety now. So that was the context for my early 20s. And so I got really involved and became a professional, you know, an activist, first a volunteer, and then I was the coordinator for the End the Arms Race Coalition in Vancouver. And then um, I went to the Canadian Peace Alliance where my partner Bob was working, and we 
incidentally fell in love, but we also were working to stop, you know, a nuclear Armageddon. And in the in in all of this, there was always in the background this enormous fight that was happening in Germany, where this young generation of activists were saying no, and they had lived with their parents who had all been, you know, part of a terrifying Nazi heritage, whether they had resisted it or just been quiet about it or gotten involved with it. They were growing up under that shadow. And so that generation of young Germans were saying no with this fierceness that just radiated out over the entire globe. And um, so we invited Petra Kelly to come to Vancouver, and I got to meet her, and I was just really stunned by her and then I found out and I don't want to have any spoilers in the book but five years after she came she came with uh, a NATO general who was her lover and that was the thing that hooked me into the book was into writing this book is that this incredible iconic peace activist feminist firebrand so powerful so sexy had fallen in love with a NATO general and he left NATO to become her partner and they became like the king and queen of the German peace movement. Anyway, she, he came to Vancouver with Petra Kelly. And um, their relationship was strange, Manda. You know? It was um, like he would carry her bags for her and he would open doors for her. And I just like noticed this. Anyway, then several years went by and I was in the Canadian Peace Alliance and someone walked in and said, Petra Kelly is dead. She's been murdered. And that was... The beginning of the book like what why did she get involved with this man who killed her this 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 life and this past of, of, of passionate activism that um, that I just wanted to explore so those are the those are the big you know washy seeds for this big washy background for this book I um, love how you talk about that moment, the sort of seeing her and seeing these little relationship relationship moments, right? And the way, because that's how your writing is. It's resonant with these, with the possibility of the kind of mundane. Um, and so you even talking about like the strangeness and the way he kind of was of service to, to her is really evocative. And it comes up in the little details in this book, but also in a lot of your writing. Um, are there other details about Petra's life that, um, and that time that you think are that that you started discovering in the writing of this book that you want people to know? Well, yeah, the thing. So I would go back to that thing about the general and her relationship with him, which I just found so fascinating. She was um, she was such a powerful figure she was such a powerful speaker I should say also that when she did speak in Vancouver at the Orpheum Theater she really really knocked our socks off she was just such an unusually vivid charismatic person and there's been whole articles written about her um, charismatic character you know she was really um, a firebringer in that you know sense of a of a, a female leader who just was so unafraid. And then to see her, so then I would say, yes, she was. She was that. She could bring something, just like like bringing lightning down in her fingertips. And yet she was very, she was chronically anxious. 
She was very, very generous to people. Like she was so generous to people on the other side of the wall who were struggling. And she'd always mention them in her speeches. But she was also a real narcissist. So she was this bundle of contradictions. She was not anybody's classic hero. She was just riddled with, you know, with human frailties. So I got really interested in that. And when I went to Germany and like interviewed people who had known her, who were her friends, who were her lovers, they all said, yeah, she was, she was a mass of contradictions. She was not an easy person, but they, they loved her. I found it really um, compelling that you tell the story of Petra through through another character, which is this man that you call Manfred. Um, and I, um, you know, I think it's interesting because you've, you're sort of, you know, what I appreciate and I thank you and other people kind of uh, applaud that you're bringing Petra back to the forefront. But I also deeply appreciate that you're creating the story of the 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 background hero and i i think of these people throughout time right they're they're often forgotten but and they're not the the huge heroes of the time but they're um you know, they're the Germans in World War II who somehow found a way to resist Nazism in a small way and but didn't get killed. You know, like th all these forgotten heroes. And I think of um, this time in particular, the way many, I think, white men, particularly maybe our white male youths who are trying to figure out what is going to be their role forward in this world that is getting... Uh, so much more complicated and has and needs to have different voices. But what is their voice supposed to be? And I love that you have this, this white man who is telling the story of this female hero. So can you talk a little bit about why that decision and who Manfred was to you in this story? Well, I really love that question. Um, and I love what you said. You said something about ordinary heroes or ordinary people who are heroic. And I've actually never heard that said about Manfred, but I really think that's true. I think that he is like that. That, And I was, I don't, I fell into telling the story of Petra um, through a male narrator because I was originally going to do this as a play. And I wanted to have um, a narrator. And I was very influenced by um, two Peter Schaefer plays, Equus and Amadeus. And, you know, they're both told from a narrator who then kind of conjures the, the show. Like he kind of makes it happen and makes it stop and makes it start. And, and the show's over, but he brings it back to life through his memory and then makes it something larger by um, kind of evoking it. So he's a bit like a Prospero, Prospero, you know, from The Tempest. So I felt like... After I'd done that with a play for a while, the play was not quite working. So then I thought, well, why am I even writing a play? I'm a novelist. So I, would, I went through this. I went through this weird morphing game with myself, like probably six or seven times, like playing an accordion, but with my own you know, self where I'd go, I'm writing a play. No, I'm not. I'm writing a novel. No, I'm writing a play. Anyway, all this to say 
that out of turning it into a play, I came up with Manfred. And when I shifted it into being a novel, Manfred was there. And I couldn't shake him loose. He was just going to tell the story. But by the time I finished the book, I realized that Manfred plays this really important role because his life intersects. He's, I should explain to people that are listening, like he's madly in love with Petra as so many men were madly in love with Petra. Petra had many lovers, sometimes simultaneously. She was a great believer in free love. Um, she was really sexy. She was dynamic. And so she, he was one of her lovers. And when I went to Germany and interviewed people, interviewed two of her ex-lovers, and quite frankly, I think they were still in love with her. Like she was that kind of, you know, larger-than-life dynamic person. And it's been 30, 28 years since she died. But um, anyway, Manfred was a kind of composite of these lover figures. And at a certain point, I felt as though his life takes a different trajectory from Petra's. Petra is a large, as I mentioned, charismatic, but also tragic figure. And some of her choices are the choices of somebody on a tragic path. They are going to burn themselves out on the fire of life, and they are going to not compromise. Whereas Manfred, in his kind of dignified but smaller life, makes a hundred minute compromises, which ultimately lead to um, happiness, really. So I wanted to um, contrast those two things, because I actually think a novel gives you enough time to actually show how lives work. And I also got really interested in if this book is about peace and war, then what do we do as humans on its really minute level? Like, what is our little dance as individuals that cause something to become love or become hate, become marriage or murder? You know, those are the things that I was sort of toying with, like always in this little Petri dish of what are we, you know, who are we? And so Manfred ended up becoming like fundamental as a foil to Petra but also as a constant gaze on her. That sets up my next question really well, which is I, when we as people are deep inside a moment, so, and which we are clearly are right now, right? We're deep inside another moment um, that we know is going to be important in history. But when we're in it, it is so hard to tell where the threads that we're living are leading to. And I, you, you're already talking about that in this book. Like when you look back at some of the things that were happening in Petra's life that were to go on, like, that seemed like simple choices, but were to go on to become monumental, whether they were good or bad. Do you look back and are there particular moments um, when you wish you could like say to her, yes, yes, this is the right one or Petra, no, like this is going to be the seed of your end. Like, like now looking back, you're like your part novelist, part mm-hmm. biographer. Do you see those, those seeds of what, um, you know, and where they're going to go? And can you give us any reflections on what they are? Yes, absolutely. Manda. Um, and there's a moment where, where Manfred has that, has that kind of realization as well. And um, he realizes that she's on a kind of trajectory and he's going to um, 
sort of pull himself back from that. And I'm just wondering if I could find that in the book. There's like this little moment. Should I just like, if I can find that really quickly? Um, you know what would this we could do while you're finding that? If, if I can do two things at once, which everybody knows that I can only do if I speak out loud, but I might be able to pull up this song that was really important to you um, in the creation of this book, which is called Lily Marlene. Do I have that right? Yeah. Um, so what uh, should I, should I play that song while oh, you're looking? Oh, that'd be lovely. Do you okay. want, can I say a couple of words about it? First? Oh, Sorry. please, okay. please, please. So now we're doing, we're multitasking, doing a lot of different things simultaneously. But yeah, so when this book was a play, I would play this again and again, just because it, it took me beyond the 80s back into um, the time of some of the characters' backstory, which was the Second World War. And the really interesting thing and moving thing about Lily and Marlena, which is um, sung here by Marlena Dietrich, I think, is that um, it became a hit on both sides of the war. Um, the Germans and the Allied um, uh, soldiers would um, hum this in in battle like it was a it was a hit like it was on I guess it was on the German radio and then the um, Americans and the Canadians and British caught wind of it and um, so it was kind of a uniting force in a funny way that um, one of those magical things that happens so yeah I love this song and I have it I have a version by Vera Lynn is oh, that okay sure Vera Lynn's going to be a little different uh, yeah, not as sexy not as not a, okay well we can uh, let's see Underneath the lantern By the barricade Darling, I remember The way you used to wait T'was there that you whispered tenderly That you loved me You'd always be My lily of the lamplight My Come for roll call, time for us to part. Darling, I'd caress you and press you to my heart. And there, neath that far off lantern light, I'd hold you tight. We'd kiss goodnight, my lily of the lamplight, my own lily, Marley. Orders came for sailing somewhere over there All confined to barracks was more than I could bear I knew you were waiting in the street I heard your feet but could not meet My lily of the lamplight My own lily Marley Resting in a billet just behind the line Even though we're parted, your lips are close to mine You wait where that lantern softly gleams Your sweet face seems to haunt my dreams My lily of the lamplight, my So I think uh, 
Shana has found that part in the book. Do you want to set it up what it is and um, again? Sure, I, I would, I'd love to, Amanda. So, I mean, this is an answer to your question that, you know, is there a moment where you just kind of feel like grabbing her and, and saying no, no, and or, you know, a moment when Manfred felt like that. And the reason I wanted to skip to this this part is quite deep into the book. It's like about page 209, but I wanted to read it because it does exactly that. So um, Petra's kind of on a course where she is, um, she's really um, in love, like madly in love with the general. And he's really in love with her, but they're also um, pushing at each other. And she decides that she's going to challenge him to um, sort of lay his cards on the table by um, going, she has an idea that she is going to go into East Germany and unroll um, a big protest um, banner um, in Alexanderplatz, which is you know highly illegal and really dangerous. And um, she's challenging the general, who she doesn't think um, is really in support of the East German dissidents. She's worried that he's a Stasi spy. And so she challenges him to, um, to come with her. And so this is Manfred just kind of reflecting on a scene where she had really grilled the general, and it's called Cosmic Laughter. And again, it's told from Manfred, the, the lover's point of the ex-lover's point of view. That night, I couldn't sleep. I tossed in bed all alone in the cold farmhouse. At about 3 a.m., I gave up. I got up and went to the kitchen and opened a beer. All at once, I wanted to telephone Petra. I felt such an urge to lay bare what I'd seen, warn her about her own self, how she'd been scraped clean of grace or kindness, her despotism. And all at once I saw Katrina, that's a, a woman that he's, Manfred's getting increasingly involved with, her hair blue or orange or platinum or jet black, throwing back her head, laughing, and I thought, there we are. She isn't pinpoint smart, pinpoint smart like Petra. She isn't scintillating or vivid. She doesn't break my heart with her lonely childhood stories or make me feel more alive just being with her. But she can laugh at herself and at me. Petra worked late almost every evening. If I telephoned her at Strasse, she might still be awake. I got the phone, set it at the kitchen table, and sat down in front of it. I felt heat under my skin. What did I want to say? I remembered seeing a Shakespearean comedy with my mother, how she'd laughed with delight. At every point, the characters seemed about to veer off into chaos and tragedy. All the elements of destruction were there, just as they were in the tragedies. Yet miraculously, hatreds got resolved. Brothers kissed. The father took the hand of his alienated son and gave him the keys to the dukedom, and everyone prepared for a wedding, rather than the multiple funerals of Hamlet or Othello. There was something so graceful and light in the ending. As we left the theater, my mother said, he has tapped into cosmic laughter. How she looked as she said that. Really happy and so, so knowledgeable, so clear. It was a surprise enough. I was surprised enough that the word stayed with me right to this moment. Was there still time to turn this situation into a comedy? That was what I wanted to put to Petra. Let's stop. Let's rest. Let's start again tomorrow with more gentleness. Let's try to find the cosmic laughter. Words I felt would intrigue Petra, draw her in. And your mother said this to you, she'd say. You've never told me. What did she mean? I was so close to telephoning her, 
or perhaps that's what I tell myself now. Instead, I decided to sort out my thoughts in a bath with another beer, which, as it turned out, was one beer too many. I woke naked in the tepid water, leaning against the horrid mound of, of concrete I had once poured into the tap, tub to stop a leak. The phone was ringing and ringing and ringing. I made my way to the kitchen, and I picked it up. It was Petra. I searched my head for cosmic laughter, but the words now meant, ne meant next to nothing, like a puzzle that had re-knotted itself in the night. Besides, Petra wasn't calling to chat. Love it. Thanks. Oh, well, this is perhaps a great time to do a little bit more reading. If you, <laughs> if you feel like you're ready. Okay. <laughs> Shana looks like maybe she's not sure if it's a great time. She's like, I just did such a good job. Um, um, but I feel like now we all, oh, and maybe this is a good time to stop and say, just as a reminder, we've come back on air a little bit early for our semester in particular to honor Marnie of Marnie's Bookstore, which guess what is the first place anywhere in the world where Petra is available. And so you, you Cortez Islanders still have, let's see, like three more days to be the first people in the world to get your hands on this book because the, the publishers sent Shana's first round of books here for this, for, for this, for, for, this, for, yeah, for, for this. a book launch and, um, and in celebration of our little uh, Canadian independent bookstore, Marnie's. Yeah. And, and Random House really, really got behind doing it on the island first, and they just love the idea. And Marnie has been just such a, such an amazing person to launch this book with. If you go into Marnie's, there's a um, pile of my books on a, a, you know, a couple of boxes of the books, and then she's got posters, we put up eight posters around the island, people. We've got them at the Gorge. We've got them at Hollyhock. We've got them in the co-op. So, yeah, that would be... I would love it if you would buy Petra at, at Marnie's because it supports Marnie's and it supports um, me, a local author. But also, I went into Marnie's and I bought Norm Gibbons' books, Sea Without Shore, Shores and The Voyage of the Arrogant. And I'm just... I'm just wowed by the beautiful um, descriptions of this book by Ruth Ozaki and Bill Gaston, writers I so admire, and I can't wait to read. I can't wait to read Norm's books. He's a local author, as I think almost everyone on the island knows, and um, yeah, so it's really fun to to browse Marnie's. I find like every time I go in there, I buy, I buy, you know, I mean, we get a chance to talk about her her bookstore later but I bought a book called Gathering Moss and if you guys haven't read Gathering Moss it's it's really it's really special it's by Robin Wall Kimmerer and it's it's just about she's a biologist and an indigenous writer and the book is about moss it's about the resilience of moss the biological properties of moss the incredible variety of mosses and when I was done, I, I often walk a trail that goes um, from Linnea up to Easter Bluff. And I would stop and I would look at like two square feet of moss and notice there's probably about eight or ten different kinds of mosses mixed in there. And then I, the, another thing that this, I'm, I am going to read, but I just wanted to say this thing about this amazing book and in support of Marnie's is, um, is, that, um, is that when moss 
when it's drought, it you know it looks so. I mean, as we as we know, as moss dwellers here on the island, it looks so flat, but it just comes back with the rain, and it just gets so bunchy, and it has this remarkable ability to withstand drought. And so it really, in actual fact, her book, her it's a sort of part memoir, part scientific treatise, part indigenous exploration, ends up making you feel really hopeful, really hopeful just through this one study of moss. So, yeah. Oh, I, I that what it, it's a beautiful oh. description too. And, yeah. and for all those who are listening who are not on Cortez, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It was probably by the time you hear this or soon after, you'll be able to get the book at your local independent bookstore or even at one of those places online that's not so independent. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you do that if you have to. Yeah. Um, you are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio, and we are having a field day celebrating Canada's Independent National Bookseller Day and putting lots of warm kudos out there to Marnie, who is our own Cortez Island Independent bookseller and we are super lucky to have one of Cortez's many talented writers and one of my very uh, dearest mentors in the studio today Shana Lambert to talk about her new book Petra and I think I've convinced her that she's going to read a a little bit um, from the book Uh, do you want to tell us what you're going to read Sure. Well, Manda suggested, and I think it's a good idea. I mean, the book is so new to me that really, these are my first moments reading publicly from it. And I'm just, I'm just really enjoying it. And thank you, Manda. Thank you so much for having me on. I like I this is really, really nice for me. Um, So I thought Manda suggested I just start from the beginning and read to the end. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) I'm just joking, people. Um, That we start at the beginning and, and you know, sometimes it's nice to hear the beginning, the opening of a book. So what I thought I would do is, so settle into your chairs, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to, or whatever, if you're driving, keep keep driving, but, <laughs> but, um, but I'm going to read the first chapter. And I think that'll take probably about 10 minutes. Um, so here we go. Chapter one, night. Petra was soaking in the tub, reading the newspaper, when she called out from the bathroom. Manfred, you simply won't believe it. This was at the farmhouse, our hub for political organizing, 30 kilometers southwest of Bonn. The house was just outside a village whose name was never important to us. Picture a few desultory cows, a pile of tires in the field next door, unmoved for the five years we occupied the place. We were here for the cheap rent and the large kitchen under heavy blackened beams. The thick walls smelled of yeast and were cool even in the height of summer. We organized, talked, yelled sometimes. The bedrooms were often covered in mattresses from the itinerant activists who came and went as we built our movement. I was bent over my cast-iron skillet like an old grandmother in a fairy tale cooking a lamb stew. I browned the cubes of meat, adding wine, then stock and vegetables, scraping the good bits from the bottom. A piece of mushroom had found its way into my beard. When Petra called, I glanced up to see frost on the window. It looked like a towered city, capped by blazing stars. That city has stayed with me long after other memories have died. Ice is important to this story. 
Petra, when she finally decided to flee, would flee to a land of ice. But in my memory it is mixed with another image. That night I wore an apron that Katrina, my ex-girlfriend, had left behind when she stormed from the house, banging the walls, kicking the door with her big black boots. It showed a jovial chef brandishing a barbecue fork on which was affixed a beaded bratwurst sausage. He himself wore an apron with another chef also brandishing a bratwurst, and so on and so on, the chefs and their sausages becoming tinier and tinier to infinity. January, 1980. Exactly two months after the announcement that rocked Europe, NATO planned to station intermediate-range nuclear missiles in West Germany, an ultimatum to the east, to Russia and its satellite states. Remove your own nuclear missiles, the SS-20s, from East Germany, or in less than three years, we roll ours in. A face-off across the Iron Curtain. The United States spoke of fighting a quote-unquote limited nuclear war in Europe. Everyone was afraid for the state of the world. As now, it was hard to think about the future without feeling a profound sense of total despair. These nuclear weapons were like sick boxes of death, each one full of a firepower that could destroy the world a hundred times over. The esteemed Bulletin of Atomic Scientists set its nuclear clock two minutes closer to midnight. But at the center of this dangerous world, our little band of sisters and brothers, led by the charismatic Petra Kelly, had a counterplan. It focused on the new political party we were building. The stew was bubbling. I stirred in a bit more broth and then picked my way through the many shoes in the hallway to the bathroom. I should say that Petra and I hadn't been lovers for over a year. This wasn't my choice, and I still had hopes. In the last year, the Irish trade unionist had fallen away, he was too possessive, and the Hamburg artist had been tasted and dismissed. His art was minimalist, but he was a cluttered mess of needs and recriminations. And it was me, Manfred Schwartz, pushing open the bathroom door. Petra shook the newspaper at me. The pads of her fingers had softened from the water. Her short, wet hair lay flat across her face. Just listen to what this NATO general has done. Gone from her face was what I thought of as her scissors look, pinched and pale, stripped of humor. She started to hand me the newspaper, then grabbed it back and read out loud, Commander of the 12th Panzer Division of the Bundeswehr. The gist was this. At a much-publicized rifle banquet in Marbach the night before, a NATO general had made a scene. A black-tie event, she said. You can imagine. The women must have all been in long gloves, gowns covered in sequins. But here, listen. There's a tradition in the club of bringing a massive roasted pig into the hall, a spanferkel, on a platter with an apple in its mouth, while the military band strikes up a ceremonial march. Well... The band chose to play the Badenweiler march. She looked at me pointedly, and yes, I understood. This was Hitler's march, played whenever he entered a public rally. This fact was well known to us, and it underlined, without further words, how fused the present Bonn elite was to the old system, ancient Nazis recycled and turned into judges and politicians. For non-Germans, it might have been possible to listen to the Badenweiler march, with its whistles and flutes and piccolos, followed by the three distinctive horns, and not hear the darker resonance of Nazism. But not for my people, children of the Nazi generation. 
Petra shook the paper straight and continued to read. No sooner had the band struck up the tune than General Emil Gerhardt, commander, etc., 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 pushed back his chair, crossed the room, and tapped the conductor on the shoulder. I would prefer it, said the general, if that particular march was not played, neither here nor on any occasion. I could picture it. The banqueting generals surrounded by their jeweled wives, the room fat with satisfaction, two men holding aloft the pig, basted in dark beer and with an apple in its mouth, a display of head cheese, pomegranates, and roasted peaches around its haunches and cloven feet, a yelp of appreciation bursting from the greybeards beards in the room, and then this general requesting the conductor's attention while he glares in surprise and keeps waving his baton, and the tuba and the bassoonist begin with mounting discord to lose control of the music until at last the whole thing founders with a final bleat of the trumpets. I say, says the general, would it be possible for you to play another song? Petra dropped the paper on the floor and stood, sloshing water. Pass me a towel, Manfred. I'm going to write him a letter. She was dripping, little breasts so pretty, hip bones framing the dark patch of hair. No, you are not, I said. That is ridiculous. I am. She handed her. I handed her the towel and she began to dry herself vigorously. He could be an important ally. Well, that's unlikely. Yes, yes, is that so? You know the mind of this general already? I know he can't help us, if that's what you mean. I went back to the kitchen where the stew had cooked down too much. Bits of potato and lamb were stuck to the frying pan. I poured in some wine, but the whole thing now had a slight burnt flavor. Petra came in toweling her hair and wearing her customary loose pink sweatshirts and a t-shirt, swords into plowshares. She tossed the towel onto the back of a chair, went to her room, and came back with a couple of postcards, one of Rosa Luxemburg, the other an innocuous vision of the Rhine in springtime. She chose the latter, sat down, and scribbled quickly, then read aloud. Dear General Gerhardt, I heard your act of conscientious objection to call attention to Hitler's odious march. Well done. If you have other values of this sort, come. Be part of our movement. Join the Green Party of West Germany. Well, what do you think? I placed a bowl of stew in front of her. It got burnt, I said. It smells good, she said. As I handed her a spoon, she took hold of my hand and kissed the back of it. We need everyone, she said. I sat. We must believe in human goodness, she said. Isn't that our job as people of this earth? I don't think so. You're angry with me, she said. Why would I be, I answered. She was silent, chewing a piece of meat. We need more allies from the center, she said. A NATO general? Is that the center? She shrugged. And what, I said. You will write him a postcard and tame him? Gentle, the general? Watch out, I wanted to say. He's old enough to be your father. She had a father thing. It was well known. She and I even occasionally laughed about it. Her proclivity for older men. Her father had disappeared when she was five without a word or note. He left her with a father-shaped gap in her chest, a place where the wind blew through, and a Pez container he'd bargained for in the American sector, shaped like Mickey Mouse. Watch out for fathers, I wanted to say. But I didn't. Listening to that beginning again, I like it even more because I see all these okay. seeds of things that are, you know, the beginning of the threads that we talked about earlier, of the things that are going to play out 
later um, in Petra's life or in this book. Um, and I and I just have to comment on how much I love that beginning where they don't bother to ever get to know the name of the town that they're, <laughs> you know, that they're near. And it, it just, it, um, you know, there's such this sense that they're in a movement, they're in a time, that their work is so important that nothing else matters. And there's also this really big difference that is brought up between Manfred and Petra because she fundamentally believes that people are good and can change. That's right. That I, I really wanted to see that see that in at the beginning, that she she thinks that she can she's a very she's a very holistic person and he came comes from a different milieu he's more he's more from a marxist milieu he's from, he's a 68er he's a german 68er which was the big sort of equivalent to the hippie movement in in america and canada it was a much more politicized student movement that really took a hold of tried to do this thing that they called the long long march through the institutions where they tried to really alter the institutions the german institutions like the university system and became really really militant and you know had huge protests that that went to the streets and they called in the police it was a frightening time um but anyway he was from that milieu and she's from she's more she's half american and half um and half German, and she's grown up with Martin Luther King. She's grown up with Rosa Parks. She's grown up with with all of these icons, and she's also chosen, you know, uh, the Dalai Lama and 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 Buddhism. So she has a very holistic view of what it means to found a, found the Green Party, and she's never going to kind of um, leave anyone behind in that. And part of her belief, really strongly, is that you you um, yeah, you can, you can do it on a small level. Like whatever you're doing, it's the smallest beautiful thing. So, she, so when she falls in love with the general, I think right from the beginning, she falls in love with him, the belief that he will be a good man. That's so important. He has been a NATO general, but now she thinks he is still a good man and he will be proven to be a good man. And so that fight between that sort of the soul of the general in a sense, like is he good or is he evil and, how, and where are we going to go with him? I'm hoping gets seated at, right at the beginning of the book in that conversation between the two of them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess this is where having fiction based on real life is so intense, right? Because you want there to be, or like I want there to be a happy ending for this woman who believes in a better future, right? That there is hope, that there is um, goodness and redemption in all of us. And maybe this is the beautiful seed of North America, right? That has not lived these same, you know, or, you know, at least the, the upper white classes have not lived the same kind of trauma that the Germans went through as they realized that goodness does not always win. But we have, you know, just on that, on that piece, I mean, as we, I think we recognize more and more our trauma was just a suppressed trauma. I mean, we, we are such a party to indigenous genocide and I grew up, you know, in Horseshoe Bay in Vancouver and 
I didn't know where my local residential schools were. You know, I didn't know that in North Vancouver there were people who had been taken away to the, res- the local residential school and were crying as they left their parents and were led down the street holding hands with their mother and their mother said goodbye to them for six months and that kids died in that school, you know. And it was only closed like about 10 years before, you know, I, I was born, I think. In, f- in fact, I think I was... I think it was closed in the 60s. So, yeah, and then the Musqueam, who were just, you know, just across in Point Grey, I mean, they were taken away to Cooper Island, where people would, I mean, people drowned trying to escape that island. And so we didn't know that. So I think that that we have to um, just always remember that as we as we talk about what happened in Europe, that we just, it just was more publicized there. It was just more known. You know, we live a suppressed past and we're only, only now are we beginning to bring it to the surface properly, right? Yeah. And I wonder about the role of kind of the, that North America naivety, which would maybe be the kindest way to see it, right? That Mm -hmm. allows like a, a, a hero like Petra to, to see time and time again the potential in someone, even if it ultimately fails. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's so, like, you know, I feel like as a writer, it, that part of it must also be hard because you know how the story ends when you begin it. Yeah. Well, I did try. I mean, I, I had to work the story so many times. Like, basically, I would start at the beginning and write you know, a new draft through to the end. I did this so many times like that. It took over a decade to write this book. And I did write other things in the meantime. I finished a book of short stories, but all the time I had this draft that I was working or reworking, reworking many, many, many times. And I would work from the beginning to the end. And when I got to the end, nothing would happen. Like that kind of added additional magic that you hope will happen at the end of the book wouldn't happen. Like there would be no magic springing to life of that additional thing that makes a book really sing. And ultimately, I do think the book does that now. And I think the difference is that there is hope in the book. And I do believe that the deeper you go, like I actually believe this as a human being, and I believe it for now, like in our climate crisis, that the deeper you go, you don't just get more darkness and more darkness. You actually get commensurate hope and so I think this book though it goes into some very dark places is actually a hopeful book you know because I think that um her legacy lives on and her her way of living lives on and her mistakes are fascinating so there's always the fascination of being human that gets to be part of that I think Emil Gerhardt fictionalized name of the general, I think he's fascinating. I think everybody, the struggle is fascinating. But I also think when you just go down as deep as you can as a human being, you get hope. You know, that's what that's what I sort of came to. And it's not an easy hope. It's not like, it's not like hope, let's just all be happy hope. It's a very different kind of thing. It's an earned hope through deep witnessing that, you know, if you deeply witness what we are as human beings, you can still be hopeful about us. I like that idea. <laughs> Thank you. So I um, 
would like to play a couple of songs that you recommended, um, and, which I found. I hope Thank you. I've got the right Thank ones. You. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to deeply witness. Um, and uh, so the first one is 99 Red Balloons. Okay. And the second one that I think we're also going to have time for, this is not our only moment to stop and, um, and have music, but uh, is... Symphony Number no. Seven, the second act second. by yeah. Beethoven. And can I say something about? Yeah, that? yeah. I, I want you to say something about okay. both of them. <laughs> okay. Oh, goody. Okay. I didn't want you just to throw ninety-nine red balloons against Beethoven's Second Symphony without a word. Um, okay. So, so ninety-nine red balloons, ninety-nine Luftballons. I guess in in German is neununundneunzig. Um, yeah, is um, is a a song that got really popular in the eighties, and it is about. Uh, what would happen? I mean, people talked a lot about this in the 80s um, during the um, nuclear terror. Uh, what would happen if a flock of geese set off global nuclear war? What would happen if a red balloon, and apparently the, the singer in this, in this song, or the guitarist actually, um, he was in a stadium and he saw one red balloon flying up and he thought, oh, what would happen if that triggered a nuclear war? So that's what this song is, and it became very popular in Germany and all over the world. So we're going to listen to 99 Red Balloons. Should I stop it, and then we'll introduce the next one? That would be great. Okay. <laughs> uh, specialized radio for you here at CKTZ <laughs> 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. Let me this back to me needing to do more than one thing at once. Let's see, 99 Red Balloons. You and I in a little toy shop Buy a bag of balloons with the money we've got Set them free at the break of dawn To one by one they were gone Back at base, box in the software Flash the message, something's out there Floating in the summer sky
You're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. I am your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie, and this is Folk University's Folk You Talk Show. We are really lucky today to have Shana Lampert, author, in to talk about her new book, Petra. And we're doing this in honor of Marnie's Bookstore because it is Canada's independent bookseller day tomorrow. Um, and we have another song that we're going to play. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, we are live in the studio and we are able to take calls from you. So in a good time to call in is when we're playing music. You can do that at 250-935-0200. Anytime you hear us taking a break here, um, with some music because then I can answer the phone and, you know, talk and do all those things at the same time. So if you have questions for Shana, um, this would be a great time, or even uh, your own thoughts about Petra Kelly, the Green Movement, um, et cetera, et cetera. We'd love to hear from you. And then also there's going to be opportunity in a little bit for you to call and tell us what your your pandemic book reading list is what's on your pandemic book reading list what are you reading what have you read recently that you've gotten from marnie's etc etc but um so there will be some time two five zero nine three five zero two zero zero and we're going to get an introduction to this next song by shana before we play beethoven's seventh second act i hope i've got the right i i think you do um it sounds like it so yeah, Marnie, I mean, um, Manda asked me what inspires me when I'm writing or what was inspiring me when I was writing Petra. And I mean, I listened to, I basically scrolled to the second movement of Beethoven's second, seventh symphony um, often because it's so moving. And I feel as though it just shakes me as a, as a writer into a new space. You know, like you put it on, you put it on loud. That's the other thing. You just put it on loud. And um, and it just kind of um, hits your chest and just just absolutely resonates through you and just makes you feel almost everything that you can feel as a human being and additional things that you didn't think you could feel. This is what I feel about this piece. Um, so, for instance, the other day we played at our be- beloved dog, Alice, 12 years old, has died. And I put on Beethoven's 7th Symphony, 2nd Movement, and I was weeping like a little child on the couch, and my husband Bob came in, and I just looked at him, and I said, I didn't realize up till now that this song, this movement, was about our dog. And he said, he, he said I know. And he, he, just, he just held me, and he just said, I know, it's about our dog. So it's really, this is about everything, Yeah.
You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. This is your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie, and this is Folk University's Folk U Talk Show. We have Shana Lampert, author of her newest book, Petra, on the radio today with us. We are super lucky to have you, and we, in a little bit, will be joined by Marnie's of Marnie's Bookstore, because all of this today, I am back in the studio a little bit early, um, because it is Canada's Independent Bookseller Day tomorrow, and we are so lucky to have authors and books and booksellers all on this tiny little island. Um, And I I was going to say this later, but I feel like saying it right now, which is, Marnie managed to keep her little bookstore open through most of the pandemic. And I and I interviewed someone, um, one of the doctors who works both at our clinic and also led uh, part of Vancouver's kind of family um, pediatrician response to how they were going to respond to the pandemic. And, and that doctor went into Marnie's and said Marnie was doing an excellent, extraordinary job of keeping everyone safe. Um, And I feel like not just safe, but sane, right? Because books are so important. So I want to now talk a little bit with Shana about your writing process and in particular, what you are writing now and how you are managing to write through this um, through this uh, particularly confusing time um, of the pandemic, where you can neither ignore it nor, <laughs> um, nor like we're right in the middle of it, nor is it easy to make sense of it. So, are you writing right now? And if so, how is this influencing what and how you're writing? I really want to say that I am writing every day because that's what I tell people when I mentor them. You have to write every day. And I mean it, but, um, and so go write every day. But unfortunately, I think for the first time in a really long time, I have been knocked off my balance. I think it's the combination of um, the pandemic and releasing a new book and just some personal things. And so I haven't been writing every day, but I just took a walk, walk with Carrie Saxifrage yesterday, another amazing local writer, and we decided that we we were we sort of set intentions for the fall, and I'm definitely going to go back to, to I think I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get up earlier. I'm going to start getting up. Um, sometimes when I'm deep in a book, I I do get up at six. I'm going to start getting up at six again, writing for a couple of hours even before anything else gets going, and then if I have things I have to do to promote my book or whatever else is coming at me, I'm going to have written. Um, because I think it just changes my sanity. And, and, and so, yeah, I'm going to, I think I'm going to fall back into that practice and, um, yeah, don't be like me, just be like what I wish I was. <laughs> and do you find that you are able to manage being a writer and still doing some form of, Activism, or maybe activism is not the right word, but that sort of busy being in the world um, aspect that being an active part of a green or peace movement kind of requires. 
Um, no, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I've had phases in my life, for instance, um, you know, recently with the um, trans, the fight to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline, I was up on the Bernadette Mountain many days a week, and I did end up getting arrested um, up there and also arrested with my daughter when they were first doing the experimental drilling on Burnaby Mountain when they when the news first came through that they were going to extend the pipeline and, and drill through Burnaby Mountain. So that sort of swept me up, and I and I was out there a lot, and I wrote a lot of pieces for the National Observer during that time, and it was, it was a kind of powerful moment to be in Vancouver and to be fighting for our coast. And so I just put aside everything. But I find as a writer that... Um, I kind of have to go down and in, and that means kind of moving away when you're really absorbed in a project, moving away from the world. And so I, I, I just try to get really absorbed into the project and don't pay as much attention. And I don't try to turn it supersonic, you know, turn it at supersonic speed into something usable because it's going to be years before it's usable. And it's a whole different process. It's a dream process. You know, writing is so much a dream process and you have to let the dream grow and expand in your head and in your heart and kind of take over your space. So a lot of times, uh, you know, when I was working on Petra, a lot of it I, I wrote on Cortez. And I sometimes would come here with my partner or with my family. But quite a few times, my children are grown, um, I would just come up here on my own. And sometimes I'd be here for three weeks, you know, in January. And and just by myself, with well, actually with my dog. And sometimes, more recently, with my dog and my cat, who made a nice adjustment to living on Cortez. And I would just be by myself. And it would be amazing how that... You know when you're when you you know when you're by yourself not just for a little bit of time but for quite a bit of time it starts to feel like your brain is being woven together again and so that sort of fractured feeling that you have checking the internet doing this taking care of that running this errand would fall away and I would actually start to get that sort of low hum of creativity that that I think allowed me to um to take on whole scenes and get them written and, and really study what I was trying to write. Yeah. I realize as you were saying that how many writers I know who are able to come to Cortez like you and really use it as a place of refuge and writing. And then so many of the writers I know who actually live here and have gotten um, stuck like you know volunteering for community organizations running radio shows or gardening now have to go somewhere else <laughs> in order to get right. the space like the mental space to do that kind of writing so um, so I might need to come stay with you <laughs> in Vancouver in order to get your writing done yeah there's something so nice about going somewhere else you know and and for me Coming to Cortez and being able to just settle into my house in the, it's up on the bluff um, above Cortez Bay, very treed, very wild, and just to be alone like that is just so, um, it's just such an incredible thing. And then, and then I do think that what happens is your, is your brain begins to still, and then there's space for creativity. You know, you can go and, you can go from writing to washing the dishes to walking on a trail, but your mind is still humming along with the idea in the book. 
and it doesn't get broken. And I think those long threads, I just think that as artists and writers, it's really hard to find the long threads. And I think everything in society is telling us, break it into pieces, check your phone, you know, um, do this, do that, you know. And there's a lot of sort of kudos we get for, like you said, for volunteering for committees or for having a, we get a lot of praise for having a fractured brain. And I think that we should also praise ourselves for stepping back and honoring our what it takes to make the brain whole enough that we can create. I love the way you speak about that, and it's exactly how I experience it. And it's so hard to do. Do you have? Um, I you know I've taken a whole week workshop with you, so I know this yeah. is not easy to to consolidate. But do you have tips for people who are? Um, you know, the sort of weakened writers and trying to figure out a way to get into that space, but not necessarily doing it as their full-time job. Right. Did you mean weekend or weekend? Weekend. <laughs> Are they weekend? Do they do it on the weekend? Weekend. Yeah, they're, they week- do. they're a little weekend. Yeah, I mean, they don't have to actually do they're, it on the weekend, right. but they could do it. But that kind of idea, right? Yeah. That they're fitting it into they're otherwise. fitting it into, yeah. So how to make it more of a constant practice? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... I feel like I outed myself by saying I'm not I'm not in a constant practice right now, but I do think that most of the, a lot of the times I I am, and I think one of the things is to figure out your best time of day for writing, and and value it by doing it at that time of day. So if you're a night person, do it at night. Light a candle, go off by yourself. Um, if you're a morning person as I am actually do get up, you know, do get up at six. I know, like I know myself, I know if I start getting up at six again, I'll be writing again and I'll be in that creative zone again, you know, Um, because it never fails, right? And then, so that's one tip. And then I would say, do it in small increments at first. Like if you haven't been, um, you know, in it every day, five days a week, producing a body of work, but that's your goal, then start off with baby steps. Do it you know, say, you say, say to yourself, I'm going to do it for 40 minutes. I'm going to do it at my favorite time of day, which is, you know, just after the kids have gone to sleep. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to pour myself a beautiful cup of tea and I'm going to sit, I'm going to find my favorite chair and I'm going to curl up. I'm going to get out my writing book and I'm going to go in and that's going to be my time. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you're not successful just because you do it for three hours. Just do it for half an hour, 40 minutes. And then you'll start to feel the hum and it'll start to, it'll start to carry you. And pretty soon you'll be back. In that zone where you're producing longer works yeah do you read while you are writing and if so are there particular kinds of books that you choose I do I just continue to read I know some writers who feel as though if they read like a really fabulous book they will start to write like that book and it'll throw them off what they're doing. And I'm not like that. I just keep reading because I just want to immerse myself in books and I do them at different times of day anyway. Like I, I, I generally am a, you know, I write in the mornings and maybe early afternoon and that's my writing session. And then um, I read at night. So it doesn't, it's fine for me. And uh, yeah, and I, and, and I just, I just love reading across the board I just read Normal People by Sally Rooney have you read that one? Oh my god it's so great they've also made it into a mini series that some people will have seen the CBC it's BBC but uh, but uh, uh, broadcast by the CBC 
and it's wonderfully, wonderfully well acted. But it's also just a just brilliant. She's in her twenties, Sally Rooney. She's in a, a a UK writer who's kind of taken the world by storm, and it's just such a sensitive, interesting love story between these two young people who are. She's actually from Ireland, um, who, um who fall in love and who are really struggling simultaneously. And it's from the man's point of view and the woman's point of view. And it's just, it's just, it, and it, what happens is it, it unfolds an entire back history that makes them anything but normal at the same time as that they're struggling um, to kind of um, live lives that they can identify with as the way other people would identify with, with normalcy. And yet, they're just riddled with their own brilliant peculiarities, and that grows across the story of the of the book. And we have Marnie, who's going to be joining us momentarily, and to help with that transition, I'm wondering, what are some of the books that you would recommend in particular during this this pandemic time, or that you have, um, you know. Uh, or that you have been recommended over the years by Marnie um, that you would like to share with us? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, okay, so I have gone into Marnie's for, you know, eight years now. And it's just, especially in, you know, summer and winter, but in winter, it's just so amazing to drive into Marnie's, find the days that she's open, come in, just stack up with some books, go home light the fire, especially if I'm by myself, and just curl up and read. And um, so a, a few books that, uh, well, I mentioned Gathering Moss at the beginning of this show. That was just a really amazing book. Um, Trees, Shrubs, and Flowers to Know in Washington and British Columbia. That was one that Marnie recommended to me. And um, also Plants of Coastal British Columbia. It contains 794 species on the Pacific Coast. And so I have gone from, with Marnie's help, Marnie sort of showed me the two books, took me to the back where the, where the um, descriptions of, you know, flora and fauna are, and um, showed me how to use each key so that I could really familiar my, familiarize myself with how to intuitively find, like you, you know, you look at the tree and you look at the book, and it's really easy to use the book so that you can look at the trunk, look, is it deciduous, coniferous, and you just get this little, you get led down a path um, super quickly to identify the tree. So that's just been lovely. So now I can go walking in Whaletown Commons and I can figure out where the spruce trees are, um, which there are in there, and the Douglas fir, the hemlock, the, you know, it's the alder, which of course you'd recognize anyway, but just, it's just been, it's been so lovely to uh, be led there. And I, you know, I felt like Marnie was so helpful in that process. Um, another book, can I, can I jump in with another? So this is a book I'm reading right now, and it's called The Mirror and the Light. And of course, a lot of the listeners will already know about this one because it's the third in the Hilary Mantel series. So she started with Wolf Hall, and then she wrote Bring Up the Bodies, and now the third one is The Mirror and the Light. And they tell the story of uh, Thomas Cromwell, who was a chief advisor to Henry VIII, and they tell the story of Henry VIII and his wives and marriages and just that terrifying, fascinating time in history 
super fictionalized inside the head of this master plotter. He's like Machiavelli. He's like the British Machiavelli. And he's so tough. He was the child of a, um, of a blacksmith. And he rises to be one of the most powerful. In fact, he is the most powerful man in England. And he is not a nobleman. And he is bossing all the noblemen around. And he is cutting off heads left, right, and center. And again, it's one of those books, Banda, it makes you feel better about the present time. Because we have to remember, we do not walk out into the co-op and see heads on pikes because, or spikes because the dictator has decided to put, you know, an example and put body parts all around for us to look at. Well, that was Henry VIII's time. You know, I just read a scene. I don't want to get too gory here, but I just read a scene where a man is very angry at Thomas Cromwell and pulls, he's a nobleman and he's young. He's inexperienced and he's furious, furious, and he pulls a knife on him in court, like outside in the courtyard. And he regrets it. He accidentally stabs a servant and in, just in the hand. And he says, I'm sorry. Like he immediately says, I'm sorry. And the people who are around him, the other nobles, including Thomas Cromwell, say, well, sorry's not going to be good enough. You're going to be sorry to the tune of your left arm because we're going to, you know, the law is if you pull a knife in court, your arm gets cut off. So, you know, and not a spoiler, but luckily they talk the king out of cutting off his arm. But, you know, there's this kind of stuff happening all the time in this book. And and it's not only this stuff, but it's like it's this background of extreme totalitarian violence, which was actually what people were living through in England 500 years ago. And it was just taken for granted. And we consider it a, a, you know, a country that ceded, you know, had the Magna Carta and, you know, ceded English democracy. And yet it was such a violent, violent place. And oh, and the other thing I want to say about that book is... Um, I'm making it sound like it's not a fun read, but it's actually fascinating because the clothes are so beautifully described. The people are so fascinatingly described. You know, I love all the brocades and the silks. So he, she, he has, he has, she has one little scene where she's describing how Thomas Cromwell, when he was a kid, he would go and like work the river as a kind of river boy. And if they found a hat, it could be, you know, a month's food, not because of the hat that fell off the noble person's head, but because of the uh, jeweled badge that would be stuck, the jeweled badge cap that would be stuck at the front of the of the cap would be like made of emeralds and precious rubies and, you know, maybe a sign of the cross or, you know, that was made out of pure gold. So anyway, it's, I really am finding that book really fascinating. And it also tells about, you know, the death of Anne Boleyn and, and, um, you know, all Thomas Cromwell's um, nefarious plotting to be the main guy behind Henry VIII. I'm going to let you tell us a couple other books, but first I'm going to um, play just a little bit of music. This is Manda O'Fox Gillespie for Folk You Talk Show. And we have Shana Lampert in the studio with us, and we are going to invite Marnie from Marnie's Books into the studio with us too. And because I do have a limit to just how much I can multitask, I'm going to play a writing-themed song um, while we do that transition. Yeah. 
Welcome back, neighbor. This is your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie, and this is Folk University's Folk You Talk Show. I am here in the studio now with Shana Lamper and Marnie from Marnie's Books, who apparently is quite familiar with this studio because she used to bring um, kids in here, a uh, brave soul that she that she is. So I... First of all, I want to just say one more time, and this is what we were talking about um, over the break, that I cannot tell you, Marnie, how completely, deeply I appreciate that you consider books to be essential to human times, to human beings. And the way that this has changed my life is that you are open even in the winter when it may not make any economic sense for you to be open, but they don't have to have a panic about being without books that you, as a writer that you have more than once, um, hosted me or hosted, uh, my books or some other thing in your, in your little store. And that during this really scary time, where through the pandemic where we no one knew what was going on or how to move forward, that you figured out a way to as safely as you could stay open for those of us who felt like books were too essential to just give up on. So lots of deep gratitudes to you as a human being and a businesswoman. So thank you. That's very sweet to hear. Uh, I have to say, Cortez is so full of avid readers that <laughs> it did seem like we had to keep going, for sure. We and, did. And, and I really appreciate how respectful everyone has been about safety, how many masks are coming through my door, how careful everyone is being about sanitizing, asking how many can come in, what's the situation. You all know my store is tiny, 320 square feet. So I really wondered as we finished lockdown what that would mean. How How do you open 320 square feet? But... Turns out, I think, you know, four people, maximum two pods, and we're doing it. And people, I think, are actually, I wouldn't say I'm busier than ever, but each individual is buying more books than ever. And I think it is. We're reading more. There's less activities happening. We're valuing more how important it is to have books to fall back on when everything else shuts down. And I, we were a reading island to begin with, for sure. But I do think something has up there. Uh, that gives me faith and, and hope in human beings. And Shana ha, is still here and, and she is specifically asked to do a little bit of her own introduction. So um, now we're going to do that thing where you don't know what's happening, but we're passing mics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm just rolling my chair forward here. Um, yeah. I just wanted to say a few words too about Marnie and about the, um, about Marnie's books. Marnie Andrews and the and and the Marnie's books because um, as an author it's been so um, touching really actually to um, launch Petra on this island with Marnie as the keystone and um, so what happened was about about a month ago I send I asked Marnie if she would wanted to read an early version of Petra. That was uh, uh, an advanced reading copy. It hadn't been, um, had its final edit. And, and Marnie said yes. So I wrote to my publicist and I said, send Marnie a copy. And the reason I did this, and I said in my memo to my publicist, when Marnie gets behind a book, 
like look out. <laughs> so I felt like I felt like this was what I what I would actually dream of was that Marnie would hand sell my book because I'd seen her do it with other people's books and I thought I just I that would be just a real dream for me because because I've I've walked into Marnie's books and I've said like I feel like reading a book that's funny but serious um has depth um is meaningful is contemporary but makes me laugh, you know, and Marnie will just go, oh, it's this one. It's the portable Veblen. That was the one of the ones that you gave me that I just fell in love with. Or it's this one by Michael Crummy, or it's this book or that book. And, and I just love the way that you'll just come right up and you'll say, try this, try that. It might be this, you know, or I didn't like this. Like you'll actually say. That's one of the most fun parts of the job. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, I've been doing this 23 years or something with the bookstore. And before that, I ran a little library. And the same thing, it, it, you get to know, okay, if somebody likes this, they'll probably like that. Or if, you know, or if they're in this mood, this might work. It doesn't mean I've read everything in there, but you do get a sense of what people like. And in a community like this, it's so much fun because everybody does read so much. They give me tremendous feedback about, oh, you've got these books. Have you read such and such? It's like, mm. no. Well, you've got to. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, my list gets long from that. Yeah. <laughs> I read as much as I can, but the list, as we all know, always grows. But it's, it's a fun time to share books with people who really love reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, so just a, a final word on that is that I just think that we're so lucky, right? Because hand selling is an art and it's indigo doesn't do it. You know, Amazon doesn't do it, but Marnie on this island really does it. And so it's an and incredible again, I want to thank this island because a lot of places lost their independent bookstores because people didn't support them. And I have to say on this island, people got that and they came in and they said it. So I knew they were getting it. They said, you know, I want to get this through you. I don't want to do it through Amazon. So I, I think that I think we have an incredible politically political leaning here towards supporting each other and supporting small business and interesting business and wanting that unusual quirky thing to exist you know not wanting the cook we're here because we don't want that cookie cutter stuff that's in the malls we don't want to spend our time in chapters where it feels soulless so i oh shana's back oh i'm back because (laughs) (laughs) that reminded me of one other thing i wanted to say which is that i started to notice in bookstores in town that they'd all carry the same thing. And it was depressing. It was like they they got the word. I think I can explain that. And yeah. in a way that I didn't understand until I had a bookstore. Because I would see that too and it would disappoint me. It's like, this is weird. Why? Why? What's going on here? So I'll go way back. Before I even worked at the library, I had a small uh, whole food store up in Haida Gwaii. And, and um, we would place one order with for produce and one order for dry goods and that was it. The wholesaler had everything. They had all the different things. And when I started the bookstore, I was assuming it would be something like that. Well, the publishing industry in Canada is crazy. You have to order every little individual thing from their individual publisher. There's a little bit of wholesaling like Book Express, but hardly any. In the States and in Britain, they both have enormous wholesalers. To do this job would be a lot like what I experienced with the whole food store. But to do it in Canada, you have to seek things out. And I get, when I go in a store now, I can see, okay, they're dealing with those three publishers. They're getting kid stuff from them. They're getting everything from them. They're missing all kinds of things because they're not going to the trouble of, it's way too much trouble. You end up, I think when I first started, I had this insane number of accounts. I did have to cut some of them back. I did have to slow it down a bit. But if you really want to get what you want, you have to 
have all these accounts, which is a tremendous amount of bookkeeping and work for a very small um, thing. So I think I know why that happens, but I didn't until I jumped in. <laughs> I don't know, you guys probably don't remember the truck when I had the bookstore in the truck. So when I first moved down to this area in 1997, I still wanted my hand in books. I'd been working in the library. I loved it. And a friend of mine said, but why don't you start a bookstore in a truck? And of course, we were moving to Reed Island, where you can't even drive to. And But the idea kind of caught hold, and Mike and I would talk it over. And he said, well, you know, our neighbors back on Haida Gwaii had the perfect truck for you, a 30-foot McGavin's bread truck. They were going to change it into like a food truck or whatever, and they never did it. So it's just sitting there. So sure enough, we called them and we bought it and we made this into a bookstore. And for five years, I lived on Reed Island, but I rented a parking spot in Harriet Bay and I would bring the book truck to the farmer's market here and the farmer's market there. So all the old timers here remember that and loved it. And what I noticed was Cortez only had, what, 900 people and Quadra had 4,000, but I was selling way more books on Cortez and the quirkier books, too. This is why when I describe the reading community here, I think there is something quite special about it. And um, so when at, at, you know, after five years, I thought, okay, I can't really do this book truck anymore. A lot of my business ideas are not very successful on the business level. <laughs> I, uh, I, I sold the truck and still had a lot of stock. And that's when Scott had the restaurant. And he said, why don't you build a little store here and, and uh, you know, just just pay me a little fee to, to lease a spot to sit your store on, get, you know, get your carpenter husband to build you a store and try it here. Do you still have stock? And I said, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know. And so we tried it. He says, well, you know, build it so you can move it if it doesn't work. Well, that's getting to be a long, I think, 17 years ago now, if we then add the five years with the book truck. And it's been great fun. It was great fun right from the get-go because the community here loves to read. This is uh, making me I, like I wanted you to tell the sort of sto story of the entrepreneur who, who, <laughs> who figured out the way to make a bookstore work in a remote community with my, brutal winters. My friend that suggested that I do that, Robbie, <laughs> he came to visit a couple of weeks ago and he came in my store for the first time. And it was so much fun. I mean, we've seen each other a lot over the years, but usually on Haida Gwaii or, or even in Vancouver, you know. And he came in and he looked around and he goes, yeah, this is exactly what I imagined. I mean, it's not the truck anymore, but still it was fun. And do you, I mean, I, I remember speaking with you a number of years ago and and you had at that time, I mean, this must have been at least five, if not 10 years ago, you were having some of the best years that you'd had. And it was at a time when like Amazon was getting so big and e-readers were getting so big. And I, I wonder... Yeah, there was a funny trajectory where all small bookstores, including me, 2008 happened, right? The financial crunch and the e-readers basically felt like in the same week. And it was a really hard blow to bookstores, to independent bookstores. I felt that. It it, it did. It, it Everybody got this novel new thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> new thing. And and that was happening. And, and I thought, what should I do? And, and there were a couple of years there where sales were way down. And I just thought, I, I didn't really know what to do. I was doing other things. I had other jobs. I wasn't open as much. And I was kind of thinking, so how do I, what's the end game here? What do I do with this? Not imagining it would change. I thought that trajectory is the new trajectory, right? Books are old. People aren't doing it anymore, even if I love them. And then it just started to turn around. And unfortunately, in that window, a lot of bookstores 
fell off because they had real rent to pay. I didn't. I'm paying the co-op a little bit to sit my own building there, so my rent is very low. I could sit there and wait it out. And waiting it out was just right because people got so tired of the e-readers. Suddenly, within a few years, everyone was coming in and saying, I need a real book. I got to look at a computer all day. I don't want to look at this thing. I'm on my holiday. So it all went up again. So it was worth writing it out. And I know I remember reading Ann Patchett, one of my favorite authors, but she also has a bookstore. And she had an article probably in The Guardian, I think. And, and she was saying the same thing. And it was, it was at exactly the same time period. She says, suddenly it's just soaring. She said, I, she went into it, not really as a livelihood means, but because she wanted to support, you know, just thought it was a good thing to do to have a bookstore to keep going. Well, turns out it became very, very popular again. So some of the best years I ever had were after that. Yeah. Crazy, eh? <laughs> I appreciate how you were speaking, too, about how even during this where, you know, a lot of people have, it's been very hard, right, not being able to have the volume um, of, of customers, but somehow you're also figuring it out. Well, you know, none of us know. I mean, it is day by day and it's changing all the time. I, you know, we were all closed for a while, so that was interesting. Um, then we opened up and I thought, well, how much should I be open? Who knows? And June was about a third of last June. So that's quite a bit down. But July was two thirds of last July. Couldn't, didn't see that coming. Suddenly there's all these people, lots of repeat people that come every summer. We're coming in. And August has also been very busy. And then just suddenly really dropped off this week, which is too early for August to drop off. Mm -hmm. So none, it's, it's just its own, it's its own pattern this year for whatever reason. But it's certainly not a dud. You know, like I say, people want to read. I think there's been less people, but I think they're buying more books. So good job, people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> books matter. Reading matters. Books matter. Absolutely. It's funny. Today I got asked to do two interviews on the same day about the bookstore. Mm -hmm. How crazy is that? So Amanda, you asked me first, and then just uh, a couple days ago, Rochelle Baker, who's now our reporter for the National Observer, said, can I do an interview with you today? And I said, well, that's weird, because I'm already doing one today, and I don't know how much I can fit into a Friday, plus it's usually busy over there. And I said, and I'm still trying to even figure out if I'm doing the one with Amanda, because I don't know who's going to watch the store. And at that point, I tried and I didn't have anyone to watch the store and she said oh I'll watch it I said okay <laughs> <laughs> haven't really met her so so just now I gave her the five minute this is how you run the store and I left her there so 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 our local journalist go, Rochelle go back, Baker go back to that interview <laughs> And the really funny thing is I was interviewed once before and it was when the bookstore was in a truck and it was almost exactly 20 years ago Wow, we have eh? really taken our good time to <laughs> to get back and all in the same and day. Twice on the same day. Um, and and wow, so thank you, Rochelle. Yeah. Uh, one yeah, day thanks, when Rochelle. you listen to this for <laughs> allowing me to scoop you by sitting in Marnie's bookstore so you, she could come over here. Hey, thanks for being fearless about just jumping in. <laughs> this, this is good. It's this good. is really good. Yeah. So this is, I feel like, the time where the three of us then can talk about uh, starting with you, Marnie, okay. what we're reading, what what you're reading right now, and what you're recommending to people. What what do people want to read during the pandemic? Okay, well, all right. I mean, what I'm reading right now is Petra for the second time, and it's fantastic. <laughs> it really is an amazing read. It hits a million things. I mean, it's 
The writing is really good. The story is great. I mean, I remember Patrick Kelly. She was such an such a enigmatic figure, so amazing, so charismatic. And it's really astonishing when I think now that nobody has written written this book before, you know? Like, how did this incredible material just sit there waiting? But turns out Shana had met her. She had a lot of reasons to to be working on that piece. She's the perfect person to do it. It's a really good read, and it's one I can recommend to almost anyone. It's a good fiction. If you just take it as a fiction, you're good. You'll be happy. You will be engaged with the story completely. There's a great love story in there. There's everything to grab that. But it's a great, like, history. It's a great story of what happened. It's an incredible feminist story. So there's all sorts of reasons to pick up Petra right now. See, this is why I wanted <laughs> Marty to launch the book. <laughs> this is the Marty Hansel. This is what you're talking about. Yeah, this is amazing. Well, it's Thank not you, just Marty. me. Thank Everyone you. is loving it. And it was mm. funny how we got to be selling it a couple weeks ahead. I mean, it still isn't actually out. In reality, it's out in September, early yeah. September. So Cortez had the jump on that, which is fun. So there's many of us who have read it here and are just loving it. Oh, that's really that's lovely. Great. Thank you so much, Marnie. I really appreciate that. And I, I, I get to talk also something um, that Marnie reminded me of about this book, which is, it's not just, I think this book, so right now um, during the pandemic and kind of even leading up to it, ever since Trump came in, I have been reading obsessively World War II fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find it really instructive, both because it helps remind me of of the many things to be hopeful about mm-hmm. right now in the world and also the many things that we really need to fight for. And and I'm realizing reading Petra and particularly as you speak how few books we have that talk about my own childhood which was um, in the 70s and 80s and it was under this constant perpetual fear of a nuclear holocaust. No kidding. And Russia and the wall and how big these were. I often say they are the defining things that in Generation X, when the wall came down and we stopped living in this sort of fear of the Cold War, I feel like that really marks the end of, of our generation or a generation that we, that many in you know, this age group share. And there's almost nothing right? That talks about in a fictional way, the heroes and existential threat. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how, how important that we get to have that both the real, the realness of it, the real characters, but also the fiction of it where we can go deep into the emotional experience that we need to remember Mm -hmm. because we've not just discovered what it is like to live with constant anxiety. We've been there before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another another local author, and I mean, this would be a nonfiction, but, you know, Rex Weiler's Greenpeace, just oh, yeah. the history of that. And I, I am, I was born in the 50s and was a child of the 60s and 70s. So all of this stuff was real for me. You know, we did march and worry about those things, Amchika, you know, it that, yeah. So Greenpeace is a great nonfiction read all about how that how that came together, what that was, how this crazy band of renegade, you know, peaceniks um, pulled off this amazing, first of all, stunts, but that turned into a movement, a worldwide movement. Just, it's a huge and amazing book. And Rex lives here. Yeah, Ryan's it's really, we're so lucky to have him yeah, here. Yeah, and yeah. It's yeah, a I good remember read. when my mother came running into my room and said, you won't believe what this little boat is doing in Amchitka, yeah, right? Like it yeah. was so 
it was so stunning. Yeah, I was in high so. school and we were always reading Bob Hunter, who was mm. part of the original group of Greenpeace and yeah. wrote a column in the Georgia Strait that we all just couldn't wait for That's every right. week. And yeah. we went and protest. And yeah, yeah no. It yeah. was a very interesting time. You know, there's another uh, local author, uh, Monica Naraki. Mm-hmm. Naraki, yeah. Naraki, yeah. yeah. So I read Cedar Dance. Yeah. And I loved it. So oh. that's another one that's on. Monica's the, books are amazing. Yeah. And, you know, Monica, that's an interesting story. She's an amazing writer. She's funny, but she's deep. They're lovely books. Her first book, um, Full Moon Lagoon, is set here on Cortez. And it is, oh my goodness, Lisa does the cover art. It's just lovely. Now, Monica is an amazing writer but had no idea about publishing. And so just went ahead and excitedly self-published because, yay, you know, self-published. And what she didn't know is that if you self-publish something, it's really hard to get a publisher to look at it after that. And she didn't want to do the, the work of marketing and all that stuff. She was just eager as a writer to write her book. And it's such a fantastic book. So when she wrote her next book, she tried really hard to find a publisher. It was not going to come out till she got a publisher, and she did, which is really exciting. And so what I'm really hoping, and I think she's hoping too, is that with that book being successful, that they'll now look at Full Moon Lagoon. Mm-hmm. But boy, both of those books are fabulous, and if anyone here on the island or anywhere in listening to this radio station hasn't read them, they're great. Kind of a preteen, early teen read, The Full Moon Lagoon. Cedar Dance goes a little bit younger. They're just great. Although I, I give them to all the people who come and visit at our house who are adults. Yes. Um, and and who love them. Um, and I, I am an adult who loves, oh, particularly during hard times, young adult literature. Mm-hmm. I find it to be way um, easier to go deep uh, with young adult literature because they don't abuse my emotions quite as much as some of the... Um, and it's just a little bit more inherently hopeful. And Full Moon Lagoon does something that we were just talking about, which it takes a time oh. and um, uh, and a history, which is in particular, in part of this, is the history of the Japanese okay. during the World War II encampment. And it folds it into this fictional narrative um, for Canadians in a way that is just so revealing and um, evokes a whole period of history mm-hmm. beautifully. That's true. It's amazing. And I just want to throw in there, too, that thinking about those World War II books, and um, and I'm thinking female writers, this is an older book, so probably a lot of you have read it, but Obasan by Joy Kagawa, Vancouver writer. Amazing. Her story of her family's internment during the Second World War. It's beautifully written, and it's sad, and it's a real, really good look at that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a beautiful book, Obasan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Joy Kagawa House is still running um, uh, readings for writers, and I'm I'm doing oh, one cool. with uh, Juji Gardner and um, uh, Caroline Addison and um, a couple of other writers, June Hutton, in um, mid September. Wonderful, yeah, cool, yeah. and it's going to be a real life event outside, of course. A couple of you know masks, but. Nice. Yeah, it's. I'm really looking forward to that because her home, her childhood home in Vancouver, um, a, a she was in Marple, wasn't she? Yeah, she was up uh, around East 64th, n- not too far from Main Street, Oak, near Oak, between Oak and Main. I grew and, up on 59th between oh, Oak you? and Camby. Oh wow! Yeah, and I remember noticing that in her book yeah. that she had lived very close yeah. by, and sadly had everything taken. So the neighborhood I got to grow up in, she yeah. didn't. So right? what happened was about 25 years ago or 20 years ago. A group of people came together, and, and Joy wanted her house back. 
I mean, it was taken from her. Oh, I don't know and, the story. Um, yeah, it was taken from her and um, and from her family, and they gave her they gave them no money. And she said, "I want my house back. Mm-hmm. I want the house that I grew up in back." And a bunch of writers came together, and a large amount of stoner. Some people think it was wow. Margaret Atwood helped to buy her house back. Oh, that's a wonderful and story. Now it's Love Joy it. Gagawa House, and they do writers and residencies for oh, writers who otherwise couldn't wouldn't have a place to write. How yeah. beautiful is that? Yeah, that is lovely. Holy smokes! That is a great story. Such a good story. So we have just enough time, I think, for each of you to give one or two more books that you'd recommend before we go. Oh well, there's um. Let me let me think. Um, well, I was talking about the mirror and the light, and I think you have the other ones there too. 